So this is what the Buddha said about equanimity. Here a practitioner dwells, pervading one direction with the heart filled with equanimity. Likewise, the second, the third, and fourth direction, so above, below, and around, the practitioner dwells pervading the entire world everywhere and equally with the heart filled with equanimity, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity, and free from distress. Equanimity is this very powerful quality of balance and evenness and insight in relation to our moment-to-moment experience. Uh, the German-born monk Nyonapona Katera talked about equanimity as um, unshakable balance rooted in insight. And it's, it's this very powerful, deep quality that in the teachings of the Buddha was, was a factor of our mind and heart that is a very, very mature quality. It's, it partakes of the sacred. It partakes of Nibbana in the sense of balance. And as I mentioned last time, what I love particularly is that the teaching of equanimity, which can, by its English connotations, really suggest some, something a little bit dry and aloof, but rather in the teachings of the Buddha, equanimity is taught with the other three so-called divine abodes or Brahma-vihara, meaning that it's taught in connection with loving-kindness, compassion, and joy. And it's, it's a beautiful teaching because it suggests that these qualities of balance and evenness and insight, unshakability, are really qualities that are not there because we're aloof, but because we're, uh, we have an open heart, but there's also understanding. In a way, it suggests another balance that we sometimes talk about these teachings, with which a phrase we sometimes uh, use to talk about the teachings, we say the Dharma is a bird that flies with the wings of wisdom and compassion, and to, that it needs both. And in fact, the, this uh, teaching of the four Brahma-viharas is a teaching of even a little more nuanced teaching of the way that equanimity, which is really the wisdom component especially, has uh, connections with uh, love, compassion, and joy. And as I'll uh, suggest, I think it really is a very, very important teaching uh, that, that there's this connection because we can very easily misunderstand equanimity as some kind of um, sort of unfeeling ivory tower on the mountain separateness from things so that I maintain my composure and calm and feel properly Buddhist. (laughs) And that's not it. And so um, this morning what I want to do first is to review a little bit some of the core qualities of equanimity that I mentioned last time and partly for the people who weren't here last week and then talk about some of what, in more detail, of what I uh, like to think of as the many near enemies of equanimity, qualities which look like equanimity, but they are distorted versions of equanimity. In some way, they don't include the love, the compassion, the joy 
And there's a way that equanimity um, points towards this balance and it's very etymology that, that some of the words which in the Pali language go to form the word equanimity, I've heard that there are really two main um, etymological meanings which, which I think reflect this very interesting balance. One of them is suggests being able to see with perspective as if from a distance, which is part of equanimity. We, we have this large perspective on things. But the other phrase is in the midst of. And I love that. So equanimity is about having this large perspective in the midst of things, not so much distanced. So I'll talk about those near enemies as a, as a way of... Um, looking at what might distort our interest in equanimity, and then lastly talk about equanimity in daily life practice and some of the forms that it takes, which are, which are related to what we did in the guided meditation. So last time I talked about six core qualities of equanimity. I talked about balance and evenness, unshakability, understanding, faith, and joy. And I think we could probably add other qualities. I think there's a certain, definitely, um, patience, a lot of patience in equanimity and, um, at times, humor. I think that's, that's another topic, but I'll, I'll, bring, that up. I'll bring that up a little bit. Um, but these, these uh, qualities, these six qualities, I think, are very good to remember because they, they really uh, bring out the, the, the nature of equanimity. And I thought I'd go very briefly over these and... and Maybe with some of them, um, tell, tell some stories to, to bring out what they're, what they're about. So the first is this quality of balance, and, and it also is related etymologically. Equanimity is the ability to be balanced with what's happening in experience. And maybe the first two of these qualities I mentioned, balance and evenness, um, suggest this notion of being able to be present with experience, particularly difficult experiences, and not be so um, tossed around by them. There's a wonderful teaching I mentioned last time called the Eight Worldly Winds, which are some of the forces which do blow us around. If you can take this metaphor of the Eight Worldly Winds, they are pain and pleasure, or pleasure and pain, gain and loss, uh, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And these are, think of how these qualities, for many of us, we get a criticism and... You know, it takes us three hours to recover, you know, if not, if not three months, <laughs> you know, or just, just maybe, you know, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's some of the, you know, the degree of comfort that's, that's there at times in this country. But just to, I, I notice sometimes when some, when I have something that just doesn't go right, you know, it sets up a, mm, something just, you know, gets out of whack and I, you know, I, you know, I think at times we think something doesn't go right. It just must entirely be my fault. You know, and, and, and so there, the, these winds do, do knock us around. And the quality of equanimity is not so much to um, get rid of difficult experiences, but it's to learn to be present with them so we don't get so knocked around by them. So equanimity is not calm. It's not the same as calm. It's more, and it's like the stillness in the center, can be the stillness in the center of the hurricane. We can be very busy and be very, very equanimous. 
that could be a misunderstanding, that equanimity is not about just having everything calm, mellow, nothing happening, but rather it's the ability to be balanced and even with whatever's happening. I believe that equanimity is really developed by seeing over and over again how we are knocked around by the winds. Equanimity doesn't come by just wanting to be equanimous or just meditating and being peaceful. I think it comes from bringing attention to how we do get knocked around, and particularly our patterns of reactivity. You were talking about the stories. You know, it's by, 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 in my experience, I become more equanimous when I become more familiar with the core ways that I lose it, and particularly the core emotions. You know, I, get, I become more familiar with anger, despair, sadness, grief, and so forth. And I study those, fear. Or I study, I study joy, I study the ways I get lost when something positive happens as well. And I study those enough so that when an experience of one of those emotions comes, it's not a um, crisis. It's more like, oh, well, it looks like, uh, looks like anger's back. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> so what's, what's a wise way to act now? Or more, huh, it's not exactly what I asked for. Not what I wished for, but this is how things are. I'm in despair for a moment, you know, or for, for a while. And that's the spirit of equanimity. It's that spirit that I mentioned that was taught by Achan Sumedho, one of the um, sort of the senior teachers in, in the uh, lineage that's connected with Spirit Rock from the Thai forest tradition, who's an American who teaches in England now, some of you have met him, who has this wonderful phrase for mindfulness practice, it's like this. Sylvia's fond of saying, it's like this, right? <laughs> it's like this. And... It's a wonderful teaching because it says, oh, despair is happening. What's that like? Oh, despair is like this. It's not like saying, it's happening, I've got to get rid of it, oh my God, what am I doing? Which, sorry if that, not, that knocked you out of equanimity. <laughs> but but it's, it's that, it's that um, that's called reactivity. And the aim of uh, equanimity practice is not to... Um, not to just be calm all the time, but it's to be with whatever's happening without that kind of reactivity. So it's more to say, oh, this is happening. It's like this. I know it. I know it from the past. And again, the learning happens when we can keep on going into the phenomena over and over again. So balance and evenness. Um, a third quality is this unshakability I mentioned in the quotation. And, and I thought of, there's, um, there's a wonderful uh, sort of myth or story in the Jewish tradition that I think reflects this unsha- sense of unshakability and equanimity. And it's, it's said that um, in the world, there are 36 beings called the Lamad Vav, who are translated as the just ones, who keep the whole world in balance by their unshakable nature. And these are 36 beings, and often they don't even know that they are one of the Lamed Vav. They could be, you know, a grandmother in Brooklyn, just, who just has this incredible equanimity, in, often in difficult circumstances. And that, those 36 beings keep the world in balance, it's said, by their own unshakability. And if, 
if the world would lose one of them, if it would move to 35 or 34, we would be in peril. It's a beautiful story. And, that, and I love also that these aren't just, you know, these aren't the, the world-famous figures, you know, the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, and so forth. But they, in the teaching, it's taught that there are a lot of these Lama Dvav are so-called hidden Lama Dvav who don't even know that they're Lama Dvav. And so it's a beautiful sense of this uh, unshakability personified in certain, in certain beings. This is what... Uh, I think this quality of unshakability is reflected in this poem that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote uh, during the war. The poem, the title of the poem is The Witness Remains, and it's that sense of being able to watch even when things are hard, the unshakable quality of awareness. Flare bombs bloom on the dark sky. A child claps his hands and laughs. I hear the sound of guns. The laughter dies, but the witness remains. So he's right in the middle of this stuff, but there's something there that's, that's, that's aware, that's watching, that's investigating. The fourth quality is a quality of understanding that I think, is, I think we know this um, in interpersonal relationships when we, maybe with someone close to us, we've had a disagreement and we hear exactly what it was like from the from the other person's experience. And whereas before that, we might have been all agitated, when we actually understand, oh, this is what was happening to me, often with detail, there's often a sense of understanding and even forgiveness. And the, the quality of understanding is really important for equanimity because it's a sense of the causes and conditions in a certain event. And when we do equanimity practice, often we might reflect on the causes and conditions. We might reflect on why this is happening to me or to someone else or to my country or to whatever, Cindy Sheehan or, or whatever. You know, um, the, the mother who's down trying to talk with President Bush. Um, and we can reflect on the causes and conditions and have some sense of a much larger perspective. That's why I love so much... Um, last week I read the... Um, the interview that I did with Joanna Macy where she talked about seeing ourselves in the context of the whole story of the universe as being part of this great unfolding 15 billion year story. And other people think like that in a little bit more manageable terms. You know, like um, I know um, Dr. Arya Ratni, he is the leader of Sarvodaya in Sri Lanka, which is probably the greatest example, most powerful example of bringing Buddhist practice into uh, social action because they've organized, uh, they have organizations in 12,000 villages in Sri Lanka and they've been primary movers in the uh, attempt to end the civil war in Sri Lanka. Very, very powerful, you know, and they've, you know, at times hold mass meditation rallies with up to 650,000 people meditating together as a force to stop violence. Very powerful, very amazing. And when he thinks about a peace plan for Sri Lanka, he has a 500-year plan. You know, There's some large sense of understanding and perspective. Or Gary Snyder likes to say, you have to minimally, when you're looking at a particular problem, have a 4,000-year perspective. <laughs> I think this points to the quality of understanding and how that can support equanimity. Again, 
not as a reason not to act, not to feel, not to be in the midst of things, but as an aid to that, you know, as an aid to action, an aid to working with emotions. Fifth quality is faith. A sixth quality is joy. And I think these maybe these go together. There's a sense of... Um, um, having that large perspective requires a deep sense of faith, requires us to be able to um, rest, in a sense, in some understanding, some energy, some uh, confidence that the larger picture is moving towards freedom that the larger picture in our own experience or in the world is moving towards liberation, that there's something in our nature which wants to be free, that we can, we can rest in that. There's a very uh, powerful story, which I think I will, I will um, tell, which, which is from the life of Martin Luther King, which is, uh, happened when he was... Um, um, just beginning the Montgomery bus boycott, 1955. And he was at a very low moment. He had had a lot of death threats. And he, one evening, uh, came home around midnight. And right as he came home, his wife and child were asleep. And right as he came home, he got a telephone call. And it was basically a, a threat. And, and this is, um, the call said, Nigger, we're tired of you and your mess now. If you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. And he was 26 years old at the time and was you know, fairly new, if you know the story, to Montgomery in, in uh, Alabama. And he later told the story. He made himself a cup of coffee and he sat down at the table. He said, I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. It was around midnight. You can have some strange experiences at midnight. I sat there and thought about a beautiful little girl. She was the darling of my life. I'd come in night after night and see that, that um, little gentle smile. And I sat at the table thinking about the little girl and thinking that she could be taken away from me at any minute. I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there asleep. She could be taken from me. I could be taken from her. I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. You can't even call on Mama now. You've got to call on that something and that person that your daddy used to tell you about, that power that can make a way out of no way. And so he goes into his own faith tradition, which I think we could think of in, in our own language in a comparable way. I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right, but Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. And he had that experience. And at that point, he said, his, um, his fears left and his uncertainty left. There was something that 
touched something very uh, deep in him. A few days later, his house actually was bombed. And um, he was notified of this before he really knew the results. I think before he even knew whether his whether anyone was hurt. And it said that at that um, little meeting, I think it was like a very small little conference with um, press there, it said that he was deeply um, calm and equanimous in ways that people found uncanny. That there, and that he, and he attributed it later to his experience. There was something that was touched that brought about a very, very uh, deep faith. That he was able, again, to be right in the middle of really difficult experiences, as it was, no one was hurt. You know, no one was hurt, but the house was damaged pretty badly. And he was able to have this equanimity right in the middle of action from that, um, from that experience which developed a kind of faith. And we might think of, have, of our own experiences that maybe are less, less dramatic, but still that, that give us that sense of uh, resting in something much larger. Um, there's also a sense of, of joy that kind of, to me, is beautiful about equanimity because it reflects this sense of... Uh, the way that the wisdom dimension connects with the heart, you might say, it connects with the love, the compassion, the joy. Um, that, and it's a joy, I think, which really can contribute to equanimity itself, that I find myself, when I meet with people who are going through a difficult time, I think of the teaching of the Brahma Vihara, and I say, you know, and this is something you might think of, um, in the front row, that your name was... Sonia, that Sonia was talking about difficult time, that the teaching of the Brahma Vihara would suggest that we can look to the balance of each of these qualities. And sometimes we may be going through difficulties. I find myself often saying, you're going through a lot of difficulties now. You know, and the, uh, maybe it's really good to focus on developing joy each day. I find myself saying that a lot right after 9-11. Look, you know, spend a lot of time with beauty. Cultivate joy. Because there's something in equanimity, which requires the joy. And if we don't have the joy in equanimity, it starts to turn into the near enemies. It starts to get dry or aloof or whatever. And so these, um, these, these core qualities are, are vital. I think if we don't have some kind of balance with equanimity, though, it starts to turn into these near enemies, which I, which I mentioned uh, last time. And I thought I'll, I'll, I'll talk about them just uh, a little bit now, because I think that our practice of equanimity will take us over and over again to, into ways that we may want to be equanimous, but we may have one of these distortions. And I have to say, I, I mentioned last time how the teaching of the Buddha is that each of the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity have what's called their near enemies, things that look like those four qualities, but they kind of masquerade as them because they're actually distortions that, that um, uh, some kind of needy or grasping love looks like loving kindness, but it really has a quality of grasping to it or pity masquerades as compassion. It really reflects aversion and indifference is the classical teaching of what looks like equanimity. You know, we, we're indifferent and we say, oh, I'm calm, but I'm really indifferent. 
I'm calm, I look like I'm maintaining my balance. You know, I'm even, I'm balanced, I think I have understanding, but I'm actually, I don't care. And that helps me stay even. And that's the classical near enemy. And I said, from my own um, vast experience in distorted equanimity, <laughs> I came up with 11 near enemies. <laughs> so these are not, these, were, these come from personal experience. <laughs> and then maybe, may you find others. May we have a great teaching that merges out of spirit rock of 100 near enemies of equanimity. Uh, but here are, here are my 11, <laughs> or 11 additional, including indifference. So this was a privileged distance. You know, we can be privileged and distant and live on the house on the hill and be very equanimous because we're actually apart from difficulties or suffering. Denial can look like equanimity. You know, I'm, um, in fact, that's why we use it, isn't it? <laughs> No, I can be in denial about something in order to keep, I think, or subconsciously, my, my equilibrium. So denial is a near enemy. Complacency can look like equanimity. I'm complacent about things. Again, maybe a variety of indifference. Resignation can look like equanimity. You know, I'm actually um, a little bit fatalistic, and I don't really want to deal with the situation, so I kind of have resignation. And I think, you know, I feel like, oh, it's kind of, I feel balanced. But it's actually, again, a lot of these come from not wanting to be with the difficult emotions that come from really seeing how things are. Acquiescence, maybe acquiescence to a situation that's not right. Can look, you know, we can use Buddhist double talk, right? You know, this is, things are perfect as they are. This is, and we can use that as a reason to acquiesce in something. You always have to remember uh, Suzuki Roshi's great statement, things are as they are, and they could use some improvement. (laughs) In a way, in a way, that's the balance of equanimity and compassion that's expressed in the Brahma Vihara. Things are as they are, and they could use some improvement. Both are true. So there has to be some taste for a little bit of paradox here. Uh, Numbness can look like uh, equanimity, right? We can actually be numb and think, oh, I'm equanimous, but I'm not feeling because I'm afraid of feeling or don't want to feel. And of course, sometimes we need to do that. Uh, It's important to to recognize. We can use our our intellect in ways. We can overemphasize understanding. We can develop a kind of intellectual aloofness or rationalization that looks like equanimity. And we know people who are part, sometimes ourselves, if we're more intellectual, we may use intellectualism as a kind of uh, defense mechanism to not really feel things. Occupational hazard of having minds, that we, that we go there sometimes. We, use, we use, our, use our stories, perhaps, as ways not to feel. Similarly, cynicism and dogmatism can be near enemies of equanimity. You know, I'm, I'm completely right about everything. I'm equanimous. <laughs> my equanimity comes from being right about everything. And I don't want to have the slightest uh, um, contact with other people's views because I'm right. And there's, so you see how that can feel like equanimity, but it's actually uh, based on fear and setting up a barrier to even learning. 
And we all, and again, these are, I think, are we all experience versions of this. And the last one is, is a fear of strong emotions. I think we can actually, and these are related. We can have a fear of strong emotions, and it can look like equanimity, but there can be an underlying fear. I'm afraid of really being um, bothered. I'm afraid of really being in contact with the suffering. And it can look like equanimity. So in daily life practice, paying attention to these near enemies is one of the ways that we develop equanimity. It's being on the lookout for the ways that there might be distorted versions of equanimity. And some of us may be more prone to these distortions than others. Or we may have, out of those list of 11 or 12 counting indifference, we may have our favorites. Probably we do. We may have ones that we're more prone to, prone to follow. And so I think in developing equanimity, I think of three main daily life practices to develop equanimity. One is to pay attention to the near enemies, to look out for them, to study them when they come, to see if there might be some action that would be skillful if we find ourselves uh, in the midst of one of these. You know, if I find myself being dogmatic, can I say, okay, I feel like I'm being dogmatic in this discussion with this person. Can I let go a little bit of my dogma and listen to what this person is saying and let myself be a little bit ruffled? You know? So I think for each of these, we could imagine some skillful ways, if we notice them, to act in daily life. A second main way would be to really work in mindfulness practice, formal mindfulness practice, and in daily life with that first practice we did during the end of the sitting. That is to really open up to those states of body and heart and mind that, are, that take us off our center and to study them. To me, this is actually the heart of the cultivation of equanimity, is to study in depth over and over again that which uh, takes us off-center. And it's not usually advertised like this, but I think that this is really the heart of our practice. You know, and we need those other times when we come back to stability and balance and peace and calm. But maybe half of our practice is working with place times that we're off-center. And the other half is the peace and the calm and being with beauty and things which stabilize us. That's one way I sometimes think about my own practice. And then the last daily life practice would be to work with some of these phrases that we, that we gave in a way similar to working with the loving-kindness practice, to work with phrases like, uh, no matter what I wish for. This is my own, my own phrase. It always resonates with me. No matter what I wish for, things are as they are. And I, it was interesting when I gave those, there was a kind of, uh huh. That arose from the <laughs> a little flutter that arose from the uh, from from our group. So it's to be able to work with these phrases, and I think working with them for ten minutes a day can go a long way. You can even last time I I, I remember thinking of um, the fact that you can work with the the equanimity phrases if you want to work with them when you're driving. It's a great way to do it. Driving on the road, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. <laughs> No matter what I wish for, this person is doing this driving behavior. <laughs> no. But we're bringing it over maybe with children. No matter what I wish for, things are as they are. Um, one of my friends, uh, Justine Dawson, who works at the um, works with, in a home for um, women who've 
suffered from domestic abuse and she works with women and kids and she lives there. Sometimes she says she comes, um, she comes home and the place is a total raging mess. Kids are going wild and for her, it's just to say, you know, she does a version of the equanimity phrase. Um, basically, she, she, no matter what I wish for, this place is a total circus. <laughs> Let me relate to the circus. <laughs> you know, it's a circus. That's, you know, it's, I would like it to be otherwise, it's a circus. Um, so let me just finish with, a, with, one of, with another one of the haikus, and then, I'll, then we'll open things up to discussion. That, for me, really brings things together. And this is, it really brings together the quality of equanimity and how it has to be connected with the heart and with involvement. And it's, it's a short haiku from the haiku writer Isa, who, who, whom I read um, some last time. And this is, um, let's see where this is. It's a haiku that refers to the um, Diamond Sutra and the teaching of impermanence, which would come out of part of the equanimity Understanding would be to understand impermanence, understand cause and conditions. And, and Isa in the haiku refers to the Diamond Sutra line where it talks about impermanence and how this world is like a, um, a dewdrop in the morning, there only for a while. He reflects on that teaching of equanimity, but he points to, I think, compassion. He does so in three lines. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. It's said that he wrote that haiku after his child died, reflecting on the balance, I, I would say, of equanimity and compassion. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. Both aspects are there. Gary Snyder, in his um, comments on, the, on that haiku, he says, after that, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world and yet, he says, that and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. So I'll end with that. Thank you. Please, Jen. Yeah, yeah. Did everyone hear the request? <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. Shall I repeat just a little bit, or maybe in my response I can connect some? It was, it was really. I, I think there were a lot of uh, really um, important aspects of practicing equanimity that came out in your, in, really in your report, report of your last week of practice, and one of them was that uh, Jan was saying that it was. Um, she found herself developing her own equanimity practice, really, because working with the phrases, the phrase, no matter what I wish for, things as they are as they are, essentially it tended to evoke something more like one of the near enemies of equanimity than equanimity. And I, I love just that discrimination to see that, because that's you're pointing out, oh, that's a near enemy. Let's go into something that feels the right... The right um, uh, direction for me, and it, it it really points to the way that we need to do these practices with a, with a sensitivity of our ten, towards our tendencies and and what we need. And it's great to sometimes to work with others or a group or teacher to help to help see that. 
And so you could work more with the sense of cultivating balance. And, and that could come in a lot of ways. I think we don't need to do it in these phrases, you know. We, it could be, you know, sometimes the balance could come from having an image for something. I remember when I had an operation some years ago, a friend of mine who's a hypnotherapist, she had me, for equanimity's purposes, um, develop an image in my mind that I went to when I was distressed during an operation, you know, or when there was some imbalance happening. So it could be something like that. It could be a song. I think there are a lot of ways that we can develop equanimity. Something, well, you know, think of, think of your dog, <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know, um, or think of a person that you think um, brings in equanimity. So it's really the creativity of being able to do that which is personally helpful, which brings about that sense of equanimity. Yeah. Um, and I think there was, let me see if there was something else, then I can get to, to your question. Um, and so it was really was to uh, do it really in your own way and to work with that and to see the last, the last point was that what you, what you came to in your investigations was to see that there was a distinction, that what really was the hardest thing was the aversion to what was happening, that when you could actually be present with what was happening, it's not, so, it's not the same. And that's, that's totally crucial finding. It's, it's actually, to me, one of the great secrets of meditation is that we actually find that our stories, our build-up about something is about a hundred times worse than, not always, but often, is, is many times worse sometimes than just actually experiencing it. It's like, I mean, to me, the, what happens when a mosquito lands on me is probably the epitome of this. You know? There's, you know, there can be minutes and hours of torment for just one little... You know, what, what's that about? And we can see that, or we can see that, you know, it's like we, we, um, we get more contorted by our anticipation than by the actual experience, often. Whether it's, you know, whether it's saying something that's hard to a friend. You know, we can have so much suffering about saying it, but the actual saying of it, sometimes it, it's not so difficult and it brings relief. So that's a really important finding, to really see if you can, do, see if you can notice that yourself. Please. Yeah, to, to use that as, and do, where does that take you? And do you get answers? Sometimes? I generally do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a kind of inquiry, which I think is, we can use that with equanimity. We can, I mean, it, it's really a variant of just asking ourselves a really deep question. That it, it's, a, it's a really important part of practice. I like to call that inquiry. Sometimes we, at Spirit Rock, we sometimes use the word inquiry for that. It's asking these strong questions and that we can ask of ourselves and just get this really honest answer. You know, like, why am I clinging? You know, or what, what is knocking me off center here? And just, and just listen. What is knocking me off center? What is I don't like here? And take some stillness to listen, because we want to listen for something that's really authentic, rather than just another line or story, right? But it's a great, it's a great tool, you know? and and um, usually cling, asking that question or another question that was one of my first practices when I first started. I had Joseph Goldstein as my teacher when I first started, and he gave me a practice which was to say any time I was suffering, he would have me say. If there's suffering, where's the clinging? 
It's an inquiry question. And just to ask that kind of from a, as much of a silent mind as possible. And it's, it's, it can be used in equanimity practice or can use it in daily life. It's very, um, it's beautiful because it, you know, and it, it, it's, um, it can set up, it really it helps us become a teacher to ourselves. You know, helps us to, um, and have it, it's, it also keeps things kind of active and um, ener- energetic. Yeah. Please, that's a great uh, Darun here. Thank you for speaking up. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's, and I think we probably have images like that. And you can think of it as a, maybe thinking of it as an equanimity image can make it stronger. Because you're saying, oh, I can use this or some variant of it when things feel a little overwhelming. To, it really gives you an understanding. Oh, it's like my friend said, oh, this is a circus. Oh, the seesaw is... <laughs> it's happening again. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, right, I, well, I think... Um, it's sometimes said that everything is skillful means, but aside from <laughs> meaning that we're that we always are, you know, until we're the Buddha, we're always going to find some of these near enemies around. So that's that's but that that's that's one point, but maybe maybe not the best way to respond. Um, but it's really yeah, it's to say um, maybe it's to say what helps me become more equanimous, and maybe it's not. And maybe, um, maybe those images. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it. I think I think basically I agree with what you're saying, but it, it seems like those kind of tools can help us be more equanimous. We can use them over long term, more like a near enemy, or we can use them to aid us in our equanimity. I think they're tools, so they can probably be used either way. Maybe that's what you're pointing to. That that um, I, if I use my image, like I used an image of the nearby hills, and if I use that to help stabilize myself when I'm feeling unstable, so that then I could be, uh, being more stable, then I could be more fully with what's there, then I'm using that well. If I use that tool as a way to escape from everything, or to not face certain things, then I'm maybe misusing it like a near enemy. It could be a near friend. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there we go. We have a whole new, a new set of teachings arising from, from Wednesday morning Spirit Rock. So, um, all beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. Okay. Please. Some kind of, um, maybe I could say that compassion, you know, maybe I could have seven qualities and add compassion. It's expressed somewhat in the sense that... I mean, equi- not to wallow in despair. Yeah. So the equanimity needs to um, have an un- understanding of, of suffering. And it needs and, to be deep, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's... Um, I think that's a good point. There's a, there's a line which, uh, from a Jewish rabbi named Nachman of Breslov, where, he's, where it's a famous song where he says, Difficult times are upon us. Joy must fill the air. Let's do that for, for closing. That would be great. And I'm sorry that I was a little brief there. We could talk more. Okay. So sitting quietly. And first letting any, any insight, something that was helpful from the morning, 
from the talk, the discussion, the meditation, related to equanimity or perhaps something, something different, some other part of one's life that there was clarity about or some, some, something one found. And be in touch also with an intention that might come out of the morning, maybe about bringing more equanimity into your practice. And then we remember that we practice for ourselves, our community here, but we also practice for others. May we, may we bring the fruits of our time together, our fruits of our explorations, our practice, And may we imagine it coming out from our hearts as a kind of equanimous compassion. Being directed towards Miriam's cousin Maureen at this very moment. going out from our hearts. And moving now in all directions beyond, including and moving further to touch all beings. May our own developing equanimous compassion be offered for the benefit, the awakening, the healing, the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.